0: Well, I would ask for you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Titus. We are going and studying the book of Titus, taking a uh, break from our study of Acts. And uh, in a few weeks, we'll be back in Acts again, picking up our study there. But for now, we're making our way through Titus. If this is your first Sunday here, kind of the way we do things is just teach through books of the Bible. And, uh, and we are here in Titus chapter 2 looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. And uh, I am excited for us to be able to engage this text here together. And uh, before we do, I would like to just open our time in prayer. So if you would just bow your head and pray with me. I appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, uh, what great songs we have sung about your grace. And we will now really dive into that as you recorded it for us. Lord I pray for us this morning that we might um, genuinely engage this and with joy uh, with excitement God I, I it's it's a great great passage that should challenge us and build us up Lord I pray for those in, in our in our in our body that are away that are out on different events and, and things this weekend I know there's many who are gone and I just pray God that that that, that their union with you would be sweet and that we would together be uh, just worshiping you this moment. Even if we're separated in different places and that, and that as one body we would declare our love for you. So thank you God that we get to now be in your word. I pray that it would uh, engage us, help us, guide us. And, uh, and I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This week I was, uh, had the privilege of being part of a little small gathering of pastors that were talking about ministry and different things. And, and one of the things we were talking about is how the world has changed around us. And uh, one of the parts of the conversation we were discussing was the fact that, uh, you know, if you go back, even like when I was a child, the role of the church in a community was different. You know, so if you go back, you know, you know several decades ago, uh, churches were built in the middle of communities, right? So if you drive around... A little town you might see a church that was built 50 60 years ago and it, you know seated 80 people and it was right in the middle of a uh, of a of a housing development and its goal was to be in the middle of that housing development and to 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 shepherd the people within that development and that's kind of how churches were were done and pastors had a particular status in the community uh, so for example they would be they would come to every city council meeting because they want to know what does the pastor think about this and principals used to call pastors when they were doing school plays and they would say hey would you review this school play and just make sure it's ethical you know these kind of things would happen and uh and and, and in in a 40-year span we kind of went from being able to speak within the culture to being outside the culture i've never gotten a phone call from a principal saying hey could you review the school play to see if it's ethical and moral you know, and could you imagine how much flack that principal would get if they did call me and ask for my, my thoughts on a school play? And so now, as, a, as Christians, we stand kind of on the outside of the, of the culture, and we're trying to speak into the culture. And it's a little harder. We have a different vantage point. And uh, we were discussing this, and we were talking about the fact that the, the, the church is in a different place in our world. And in many ways, we think, have to think a little bit more like missionaries a little bit more of how, how do we actually engage in this way and, and so this is a question that comes up how do we respond to this how do we respond to the fact that the culture is changing and we've mentioned this several times over since we studied Titus you know that, that things go on in our world and we we want to figure out how to respond to them but how do we do it in a way that actually creates change rather than just noise how do you do this what's the response well Titus, I believe, gives us the answer to this, but, but before we jump into Titus, I want to explain to you something about culture and, and how culture works, because I think if you can understand this about culture, you'll actually understand the value of Titus chapter 2. You'll understand why this is so essential, why this isn't just a, a set of moralities that, that, that you're just supposed to measure up to, but it's actually God's change agent in the world, As the book of Titus goes on and we get into chapter 3, we're going to see that that all of this stuff is set up this way so that the church would actually make an impact in a pagan culture. But I want to explain to you why this is. I want to give you a little bit of a lesson on culture. So I'm going to put a slide up here. Well, someone will put a slide up there. I won't. But a slide will be up there. Now, do not worry about those words that are on that that, that slide. Okay? I was going to blow them off anyways. I didn't make this slide up. Uh, I'm borrowing it. But, but I want to show you something. This is called the cultural iceberg. Now, whenever you look at a culture, you look at our culture, there are, there are things that are above the surface. Like you know this about icebergs, right? Everybody knows this. It's the classic illustration. What is below the water is more than what's above the water. I have taken little boats up to icebergs. I have seen this. It's amazing what is below the water when you can see, you know, how much of the iceberg actually dwells underneath. But there is a part that's up top that you can see. And sometimes even you can go up to a really big iceberg in the water that's huge and realize that, that what you're seeing on the top, isn't that, that underneath is even bigger. It's massive. It's, it's an amazing thing. And so this is an illustration of culture. So you can see there, hopefully, this thing over on the right that says surface culture and deep culture. Let me explain to you what that means. The top of the iceberg that's above is what you would call surface culture. Those are the things that you see in the culture. That might be a law that's passed. That might be a movie that comes out or a book that is written. It might be, you know, what is considered popular music. It might be the Super Bowl uh, halftime show and what they choose to put on the Super Bowl halftime show. All of that is what's called surface culture. We see it. We can feel it. we We can recognize it. But that is actually not what drives the culture. It's not what drives the culture. The Super Bowl halftime show is what you can see of culture, but it's actually not making culture. What drives the culture is what's down below of what we call deep culture. Those are the actual feelings and morals and the theology of the world. What do I mean by that? How someone defines God. How someone defines love. What someone believes about truth. Those are the things that are within the deep culture. Now, when what you believe about God, what you believe about morality, what you believe about sexuality, what you believe about all those things, those belief systems, how you define what is nice, how you define what is bad, how you define what is good, how you define what is evil, what you call righteous, what you call unrighteous, that's all deep culture stuff. And in the, in the wake of that deep culture stuff, what happens is that out of that comes the surface culture, the stuff you see. So let me put this in an illustration. Let's say a really horrific movie comes out, just a, a wretched movie, super bad movie. Like, and, and we as Christians are like, well, we are so offended by that movie that we decide we're going to protest the movie. We're going to protest all the sponsors. We are going to just stand up and say, that movie is bad, it's wretched, we're horrible, no one goes see it, and we do. We shut it down so the movie can't be played in the theaters. Have we changed the culture? Now, the movie's not being played, but have we changed the culture? You see, you can't change the culture on the surface level. All we did was stop the movie. But that is not stopping people from making movies like that. That doesn't, that doesn't make the person who made that movie suddenly go, wow, I was really wrong in making that movie. My moral fabric is horrible. I should change it. Right? It doesn't change it. When you want to change the culture, you've got to deal down in the deep culture level. Now the question is how do you change on the deep culture level then? Where's the impact? What we find out is that the Word of God is the only thing, ooh, I got lots of papers in here, the only thing that can change the deep culture. It is the truth that is here. Now, once I say this, you say, well, Steve, there's a problem now, right? There's a problem. The problem is I just cannot suddenly walk into Hollywood and say, hey, can I uh, give you a Bible study, you know, because you're, I need to really, I want to impact the deep culture here and. And so, uh, can I get all the producers together to do a Bible study with me? No, they're not going to do a Bible study, right? Because you would say, well, Steve, no one believes the Bible is true. So how do we, in the world, impact the culture at a deep level? And if you're saying that it's the truth of God's Word that impacts the deep culture, and no one believes the Bible as being true, then we're stuck. Titus chapter 2, that's what this is about. What Titus chapter 2 is saying is, family unit, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, right? Grandma, grandpa, mom, dad. That's what Titus 2 is saying. Grandma, grandpa, mom, dad. Listen, if you begin to walk in this world in a transformed manner, you will validate the very word of God. That's what he says in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. You'll validate it. This will make such a major impact that the word of God will not be maligned that the truth of the scriptures will not be looked at as being false because when they look at you and they see a mom who's kind to her children, when all the other moms are struggling with their children, they've got the two-year-old that just will not obey, and they're screaming at their kids because they're so mad. And in comes this woman saying, oh, man, and talking and loving and nurturing, and they're saying, how do you do that? How in the world are you not sticking a fork in your own eye because you're so frustrated right now? How are you that way? You say, well, I do struggle with being frustrated. It's why we have plastic forks at home. No, <laughs> I, do, I do struggle. But I go somewhere to get help. I have a godly woman in my life who mentors me. And when that anger wells up inside of me, I sit down and I begin to read the word. And it begins to wash over me. And I anchor my life there and I go back there. And suddenly the culture says, well, man, I can't deny that. You're the only one in the mops group that seems balanced. You're the only one that seems balanced. That's what Titus chapter 2 is about. At that level, mom in a mops group with other mothers of preschoolers who's working and growing and being kind and gentle and and not being overrun by the difficulties of parenting. It's hard, right? We know it's hard, right? And, and, the, and we need God's grace, right? So I'm not saying, anticipating all you being perfect parents here. The point is, as you're growing in this arena, and our church is focusing on saying, this is what we want to be, this is how we want to do this, and we believe the grace of God can transform us, then the word of God is validated, and that mom is shaping culture in a way that is so much more powerful than if I could stop a movie from being played at a movie theater. That if I could stand up and and, and stop advertisers from supporting a movie. Here's the point. This is the exciting part. You, in your home, the way grandma, grandpa, Mom and dad live. Have more power to address culture at the deep culture level than any politician in the world. This is what Titus 2 is about. We can't malign it. We won't malign it. We'll we'll validate it. We'll show it to be true, and therefore we're impacting the culture. Okay, so that's what this is about. So last week we looked at... At grandma, grandpa, mom, dad. We looked at the, these pieces. We looked at, at what's there. And we saw that whole grocery list of things in all of them. And when you read through that list, you know, there were very few amens and more ouches, right? As you go through this thing, you go, man, this is really heavy stuff. You know, I mean, you, you read through everything that's there and you say, okay, I struggle with all those things. So how do I get there? How do I become this? How do I become this person that's addressing culture at the deep culture level? Well, that's what today is about, verses 11 through 15. Verses 11 through 15 focus us on on the how and the why, and it puts it all together and explains to us how this works, so that when you read 11 through 15, you're going to be challenged, you're going to be pushed a little bit, but hopefully you'll also find some relief that you recognize that God is not giving you this list in verses 1 through 10 and saying, you know, older men, if you're sober minded, dig- if you're not sober minded, dignified, self control, sound in faith, in, sound in love and steadfastness, then you have no part with me. That's not what it's saying. What, what verses 11 through 15 is saying older men, because of Christ, you have a seat at my table. And so now I'm going to help you become that. Older women, you have a seat at the table because of what Christ has done for you. And so now we're going to help you become this. And on and on it goes. We're going to help you become young, Young women, you have a seat at the table because of what Christ has done. And so now God's going to help you become this. See, on and on it goes. Like that. That's the perspective. So I want to show you this. And it's all centered around this one word called Grace. That's why we've been singing about grace today. And we're going to see that grace is not just a generic term. You know, it's not just a greeting, grace to you, or things like that. It's actually a very deep and profound part of God. And when you understand this, you will see how incredible it is. And in your bulletin, you can see there's an outline And there's three things we learn about grace in this passage. Grace is a gift, grace is a teacher, and grace is hope. And, and, and if you can see these things... I believe it will really genuinely impact you. So let's look here at grace as the gift. Okay, so, so notice that we, we, you know, last week we, we unpacked verses 1 through 10. The older men, older women, younger women, younger men, the pastors, the servants, all the things that, that, that the, the cultural heart issues, the, the ethics and the morals, the deep culture stuff in, in, in us. And we saw that, and it's overwhelming And and now what happens in verse 11 is you can see this. He says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. A little Bible study tip. Remember when you see the word for in a text is when it's beginning a thought. It's a rationale. It's giving you the reason why something is supposed to be the way that it is. So he's listed out all this stuff about men and women. Now he's going to tell you why. Why is it this way? Well, here's the reason why we have verses 1 through 10. Here's the reason why. Because the grace of God has appeared. What is the grace of God? Let me give you a technical definition of the grace of God. This is like really, you know, just straightforward, benign statement, right? But this is the technical definition. God's beneficial activity on behalf of humans. So if you were to look it up in a Theology book—that's what you find. God's beneficial activities on behalf of be humans, on behalf of be humans, on behalf of humans. Okay, what does that mean? It means this. It means that God is so not like us. It's crazy. That's how I would define grace. God is so not like us. It's crazy. Okay, because here's the reality: you have somebody in your life who is annoying and aggressive and a pain, and, and they suck the life out of you. I mean, they walk into a room and all the air is out of your balloon. You're like, oh, this person kills me, okay? You maybe have met one person in your life that way. And so what happens is we spend our entire life running away from that person, right? That's it. I mean, you see them walking down the hallway, you're ducking into the bathroom. You know, I mean, it's just like, you cannot be around that person. And when you're around that person, you pull away. Grace is this. Grace has that person that hates God, that works against God, that everything that they do is to make God undone, unglorified. You know, they work at cross purposes. And God says, wow, how do I make their life better? That's grace. Let's see, i got to save them. Why well, do I gotta save them? Well, I gotta bear their wrath so that I don't send them to hell because the boy they do a lot that's worth going to hell. I'll save them, I'll bear their wrath on a cross. I'll do all of this and then not only will I save them, I'll give them my spirit, and then I'm gonna give them my word, and I'm gonna give them teachers. And I'm going to give them people so that eventually they stop working at cross purposes for me. And they stop working against me. They stop working to do everything against me. And suddenly they begin to become more like me. And they start walking in love. And they go from being a person who has no value to a person of value. And they go from a person who's destroying their home to a person who's building up their home. And they go from a person where everybody hates them to now people are starting to go, What happened to you? How did you change? That's grace. Grace is God's beneficial activity on behalf of humans. But it's not just that in the abstract. It's God reaching out to the person that he should crush and making them lovable so that they could stand in his presence blameless and with great joy. That's grace. Now he says, here's what happened. Grace Appeared. Now, the reason why I want to point out to you this word appeared is because appeared means that God brought it. It wasn't that mankind cleaned up their act enough to where God said, All right, you've shown me enough effort. You know, you've shown me your part. Now I'll give you my part. Right? Grace is not heaven helps them that helps themselves. It's not grace. It appeared, it showed up. It just showed up. The word appeared is actually uh, the idea of a supernatural appearing. Okay, the word appeared usually only shows up like if all of a sudden some like you know, star came through the ceiling and lit up the room here, right? And everybody went, oh, hey, that's freaky. Let's get out of here, right? If that happened, okay, that's what appeared would mean. And if the police were saying, what happened? Why did you all run out of the building? I don't know, man. This big light just appeared. That's what you mean. It just showed up. I'm I'm pointing out that word because I want to show you that it is a gift. Whenever you see grace appeared, you have to in your brain insert grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. God is working on behalf of us. And not just a certain class or group of people, but who? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does that mean? You could say it this way for every nation. God is not working with a particular class of people, a particular color of skin, a particular country. It's not just rich white people. It's not just Jews. It's not just Middle Eastern. It is the world. Everyone can have a seat at God's table. Why? Because God is a God of grace. It's a gift. So, here's the logic of the text so far. He says, now listen, older men... I want your character to be such that you make a difference in this world. And older women, I want your character to be such. And then older women, I want you working with the younger women so their character would be changed. And Younger men, self-control, right? One thing for the young men. Self-control, you've got to work on that. And servants, when you're there, man, make sure that you're serving with integrity. And pastors, as you're equipping this, make sure you're not working against the Word of God in your character. Why? Because God's grace showed up on the scene and brought us into the presence of God and has allowed us to be transformed. Salvation has come. We don't have to walk in the same bondage that the rest of the world is walking in. And if you think about it, as you get older, you feel more and more enslaved, right? When you're a young kid, isn't this true, when you're a young person, you see adulthood as ultimate freedom, don't you? Right? Like the average 15-year-old kid Sits in her house and says, man, I can't wait till I drive. I can't wait till I have a car. This is going to be great. You know, and then, and then maybe they challenge you. Hey, mom and dad, you get to do this. You get to do this. Why can't I do that, right? That kind of stuff happens. Because they see adulthood as freedom. And then you become an adult. How do you define freedom? Childhood. Man, wouldn't it be great just to get up and play all summer? And all you got to do is make your bed? That's it? I could do that now. I mean, I didn't when I was then, but, but now I can do it. I can make my bed. Let me go back one summer off. I'll make my bed. I'll wash the dishes. Trust me. If that were my only two problems in life my bed and my chores oh, that's freedom, right? Where am I going with that? I don't know where I'm going. Oh, I'm dreaming of childhood again. Like, huh? No. <laughs> As you get older, you get more enslaved. Why? Because you see sin that's in our heart and the flesh. It doesn't free you. Grace comes, sets you free as a gift. It's a message to the world. Okay, so there's the first point. Grace, the teacher, or grace, the gift. Now let's look at our second point. Grace, the teacher. I mean, that's enough there just to get all excited about but but we still haven't wrestled with the issue of how do I become that older man or how do I become that older woman or the younger woman or the younger man or the faithful pastor or the good servant? How do I become these things? How does my home look this way? So now we learn something about grace. When God gives us grace, He not only saves you, but now He works at teaching you. Notice verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly in this present age. So what does grace do? The word train, it trains us, it teaches us. The idea behind this training is the same idea if you had a personal trainer. So you go to the gym and you say, Hey, listen, man, the most exercise I have had for the past five years is I get up and I walk to the bathroom and I walk to the kitchen and I walk to my car. That's about my you know, cardiovascular exercise, help me get in shape. Well, the trainer isn't saying, great, we're going to run a 5K today, right? The trainer is going to say, okay, we're just going to begin with some this, or I don't even know what they would do, right? But they would just help you get in shape. And they would gradually work with you based upon your health, your, your you know, whatever issues you have, and, and, and they work with you to get you to a certain point. That's what this is saying. Grace is this thing inside of you that God gives you that begins to work inside of you. Now you say, how do you, what do you mean by that? How does that look? Let me just, the only thing I can do is just tell you personally how I've witnessed it in my life, just as like a testimony. When I was a young man, a young boy actually, I mean from like kindergarten on, I started listening to music. When I was in kindergarten, I discovered my sister's record collection when she went off to college. And it was like the Beatles and the Beach Boys. You know, she's a child of the 60s, right? So it was like all this 60s music. And I have discovered this thing. She was off in college. I'm roaming around in her room, uh, and, right? Because that's what you do when you're six years old and your sister's off to college. Hey, what's in here, you know? And, uh, and I find all these records. And, and so I got this record player, which is like this big box kids that plays these big vinyl things, and they spin around. And uh, you put this thing on it, and you turn it on. And it had dials, actually. And... Uh, and, uh, and I would sit in front of this record player, listening to this music, and I fell in love with music. And it got so, so in love with music that by the time I was 16, I couldn't, I was thinking of songs all day long, and I had music on all the time. And when I was in high school and the Walkman came out, that was like from heaven, I could put these headphones on. I didn't have to lay in front of a record player. I could actually walk around and listen to music. I thought, this is like the greatest technology ever. And I listened to music nonstop. Here's the problem. I grew so in love with music, I lost all discernment. And the songs that I listened to, I, they, I got numb to the lyrics. And you name any song from the 1960s to the 1980s, man, I could, the lyrics will come to my brain even to today because I listen to it nonstop. So now I'm about 20 years old. I'm desiring to follow God. God's just got this passion in my heart, and I start reading my Bible. And as I'm reading my Bible, I start thinking, man, I'm spending more time listening to music than reading my Bible. I think I'm going to read my Bible tonight. That one moment, I remember that day saying that. That's the grace of God. It's saying this to you, Steve, you're not in the Word enough. I go, okay. A little time of the Word. So now you get in the Word a little bit. And all of a sudden, I'm in the Word a little bit more, a little less music. Now, no one is sitting here saying, music is, you know, evil. I mean, there were people yelling, you know, this is, you know, it's of the devil and all this stuff. That didn't do anything to me. There was something inside of me that wanted to, to read the Bible. And know what it said. And I started reading the Bible. I started listening to sermons on the radio. Weirdest thing. 20-year-old guy wanted to listen to sermons on the radio. Why? Grace of God. Starting to move me away. And then suddenly, a song comes on the radio, and I hear the lyrics differently. And I go, whoa, that is a horrible message. Click. Turn it off. That's the grace of God. See, over time, then years later, married married. And, uh, and not just with music, but even with movies and stuff that I would watch. Heather and I are at the video store back when they used to have video stores when we were first married. Oh, Heather, this is a great film. we got to get this. We take it home. We put it in the VCR. And Heather's like, this is a horrible film. I said, yeah, 1985. I thought that was a great film. You know, What happened? The grace of God started training me slowly, slowly. That's what it's saying. This is what he's saying here. Look at, look at the text again. Training us to do what? to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's training me to suddenly start saying, I don't want to watch that movie anymore. I don't want to watch that film anymore. I don't want to listen to that song anymore. Suddenly those lyrics are a little bothersome to me. How did that happen in your life? It happens because God has given us grace. And it starts to teach us to say no. It starts to teach us to say no. No. And that's what's going on. But not only that, not only teaches me to say no, it also teaches me to say yes. Because now what it's telling me to do is it's saying, listen, you can live self controlled, and we've talked about that. That means you're ruled by the wisdom of God, not your own passion. Suddenly, the grace, as it's driving me to God's word, and driving me to God's teachers, and driving me to God's people, and driving me to good mentors and good influences in my life, as it's driving me there, what's happening? Suddenly, the wisdom of God is taking over, and I'm not doing as crazy of things as I used to do. Suddenly, I can live an upright life. What does an upright life mean? That's that's how the world sees you. Suddenly, I'm not the wild, crazy kid that would do anything for a laugh. Suddenly, people start saying, hey, you know what, I, I like that person. They have integrity. I like the way they're living their life. They're different. Not only that... The grace of God teaches me to, to walk and, and to be so transformed that I start living godly, which means now I'm starting to listen to music that pleases God. Now I'm starting to do things with my time that brings glory to God. But this is all grace that's doing this. This isn't coming because somebody is, is, is attacking me or, or guilting me into it. There's something inside of me that's moving me there. Now, this leads to a question, the big burning question. I'm sure that somebody in the room is thinking this. Well, Steve, what about people who, who claim Christ, but they don't have that move inside their heart? They say, well, I believe in Jesus, but their music choices are getting worse, not better. <laughs> you know, their movie choices are getting worse, not better. What do we do? How do we respond to that? I've got three responses I will give to you to that question. First response is this, if you're thinking of someone else in this room, be careful. Be careful. You're not God, and you don't know what's going on in their heart. Remember we talked about surface culture and deep culture? It could be that God is working on some areas in that person's life that you just can't see. And the one thing you don't want to do is assume that what you see is all there is to see, right? Be careful. The danger of of going down that road too deeply in your own heart is you will become judgmental. And then you will suddenly take the role that God doesn't really want to give to you, Deputy Holy Spirit. Right? He doesn't want to commission you with a star and say, go ahead and judge people's hearts. You're wise enough. You can do it. He doesn't do that. So be careful with that. You don't know what God is doing. That's my first, first statement. Second response to that, is if you're that person, if you say, Steve, I have no idea. I, 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 I you know, became a Christian when I was six, but I, I have no, I, I can't relate to anything you say up here. I have no, I can't relate to this at all, the grace of God working my life in this way at all. I, can't, I don't connect with it. Then my response to you would be this. Don't be totally confident in that profession of faith. Don't be totally confident in it. Because it's God's grace that does this. It's not my laws or my rules that will ever change you. I can give you my moral code, and you can say, Well, you're a pastor, so I'll follow your moral code. But that moral code cannot transform your heart. And so, what I would say to you is be careful and go before God and ask God, Am I changed? Have I really repented? Do I really want to follow you, God? Because grace is something that God does in someone's life. It's not something that I do in your life. It's not going to be found through the way some religions of the world want to change you. Right? Change or I cut your head off. Follow my moral code or I kill you on a beach somewhere. That doesn't produce change. God produces the change. And if you're not sensing that in your life, then I would go before God because here's the third thing i would say to you the work of god's grace in your life isn't just about your eternal destiny it's about your your momentary transformation as well god is calling you from darkness to light and if you haven't sensed the movement from darkness to light then maybe you haven't really been in touch with the grace of god but the good news is that grace has appeared And the good news is that even if all these years you have been deceived, God's not mad and God's not upset because His grace has come to work on behalf of all men, all women, everyone. And you can bring your heart and your life to Him. Why? Because you see the sign that you are with Christ, the sign that that grace is at work in your life is that transformation starts to occur because God is the one who's in charge of making us verses 1 through 10. He's the one that's doing that. Okay, there's a final thing we'll see here. Okay, we've seen grace as a gift, grace as a teacher. Now let's see grace as a hope. Grace as a hope. Let's look at this one. This is really powerful. Notice what he says in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now why would he say this here? Here's the reality. That that this kind of lifestyle, living this sort of way requires us to have a long view and not a short view what do i mean by a long view versus a short view the long view is this it's putting my life in perspective in light of eternity not just in light of this moment serving god can be hard living in this world can be hard being a kind person has its earthly disadvantages right being a forgiving person has its earthly disadvantages Waiting for the justice of God to bring justice in a situation has its disadvantages. It means this. It might mean that I'm going to give up any opportunity to have other temporal blessings that other people have. Some people who are Christians might have a blessing and you might look and say, man, I want that blessing, but I'm not in a situation to have that blessing. This really stinks. You mean I got to live the rest of my life without that? That's hard. I can't live that way. That's a short-view world. If all there was in this world was just this moment, then boy, you're out of luck. But what the thing the grace of God does is it lifts my eyes to recognize there is a day of justice coming. So that person in your family that's making your life hard and difficult and tearing you down and you're saying, why don't they ever change? Why don't God, why can't you call them to move? You know, why can't you move this situation? Why can't you call me to move? You know, Hawaii would be a wonderful place to serve you. And I would go there and I wouldn't get caught up in the weather. I'd be your servant. Please just take me there. Right? All these things that you think, God, why can't you just change this right now? That's a short view. That's called the short view. Because all you're living for is the moment. And I understand, man. Trust me, man. Like, if I have a toothache, all that matters is the toothache. So I get that. Right? Seriously, if I have a toothache, it's like, you know, it's, it's hard with, your, with a woman who's given birth and things like that. And so they've had, like, they've experienced real pain. And, you know, I haven't. And, but I'm like, oh, my tooth hurts. Family, stop. Let's get a vigil. You know, put me in the middle of the room. Just serve me. I, my, I can feel, get that way in, in little things in life. Let alone a bigger problem, let alone dealing with sin, let alone dealing with people who don't like you, let alone all that stuff can, can happen and I can start getting into the short view and then grace reminds me, you know what? You're going to have to serve here right now. You're going you're to take it on the chin. You're going to suffer a little bit. You're, you're not going to get all the temporal blessings that everyone around you is going to get. It's going to be hard. My call for you is going to require you to suffer in this way for my kingdom. But Grace says, but remember the blessed hope. Blessed hope means the glorious moment when it's all made right. Waiting for this glorious moment. And what is it? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One way you can define blessed hope is what I would call it this way. The promise of resolution. Walking as a Christian right now means many things go unresolved and they're hard and it makes you anxious. But then comes the day of blessed resolution. What will it be? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Matthew 24 says this that when Jesus returns, the sun goes away, the moon goes away. The stars go away, and all of heaven is filled with the fullness of the glory of Jesus. Like anyone who ever denies the presence of Jesus is going to be freaking out. Because his glory is going to be seen. And he's saying, grace reminds you, that day is coming, that day is coming, that day is coming. Hang on, don't give up, persevere. Hang on, that day is coming. The glorious perseverance of this. One of the great things that came out of the spirituals that were written during the time of slavery were people who were abused and mistreated and treated as subhuman. And what did they sing about? I'm crossing Jordan one day, man. Jesus is coming back. The blessed hope is coming. Why would they write songs like that? The grace of God is at work. Reminding them that Jesus is coming back. And not just Jesus in some glorious light show. But who's coming back? He's our God, right? He's our Lord. He's our Savior, which means He's redeeming you. He's our Messiah, our Christ. The one who died for you. He's coming back to get you, is what He's saying. Grace reminds you of that. And just in case you want, in case you, you need any extra hope, notice verse 14. Right? It's like, we got enough hope here, but he's just gonna pile it on. Verse 14. This one who's coming back, remember what he did for you, is what he says at 14, who gave himself for us. He died for you. He bore all the sin. So all the things you beat yourself up over, he's already died for. All the things you're guilty about, you feel guilty about, he's died for. All the stuff you're struggling with, he's covered. He covered it. And he did this to do what? To redeem us. Redeem means to purchase us. To legally transfer us from one state to another. That's what redemption means. He legally transferred us from what? From lawlessness. From living as if God's heart doesn't matter. We live for our own laws. And then what did he do? He purified for himself a people for his own position. He's cleansed you. Not only has he cleansed you, he then places this thing inside of you that says, I want to be Titus too. I'm not, but I want to be. I want to be that. I know I'm not, but I want to be. This is what he's doing. This is the one who's coming back, who's doing all of this work in you. Isn't that powerful? This is, this is, this is the grace of God. And it's our blessed hope. This is why, notice 15, we'll finish it here and then I'll wrap it up. Verse 15, he says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Right? Here's how I would, the leston translation of this would be, preach this, brother. Call people to, to live it and expose people who would deny it. Right? Preach it. Call people to it. And expose people. And whatever you do, even if you're a young man, don't let anyone look down upon you. You're too young to preach that. You shouldn't be doing this. How can you do this? You're this, you're that. You're immature, you're this. Don't let them do that to you. Stand on the authority of the message, not on the authority of your age, on the authority of the message. This is God's word. This is what it says. And declare it with boldness. Okay, so what did we learn here? Three things. First of all, God's grace is a gift. We didn't earn it. He appeared. He brought it to redeem us. It's incredible. God's grace is a teacher. It's this thing inside of you. It's working inside of you and moving you, moving you, pressing you, and, 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 and doing things inside of you to, to transform you. And this is what God is doing. He's so committed to you. He's doing this. And grace is our hope. And grace reminds us to the long view because serving god is a cost and every single one of us has a cost we have to pay in our christian walk your cost is not my cost and my cost is not your cost so let's not compare them but every single one of us is in a different place and every single one of us has to has a cost for loving christ in their own context you all do we all do but grace says but don't get the short view Don't get the short view. Remember what's going to happen when Jesus returns and His glory fills the sky. And remember, He's coming back. He's the Lord of the universe. Everyone will know it. Things will be made right. It's the blessed day of resolution. And this one who's coming back is the one who loves you, saves you, cleansing you, doing this work. Now, when we capture this understanding of God's grace... And this becomes the motivating factor. It will cause us to be transformed into this way. And when we're transformed into this way, Titus 2 says, we validate the word of God. And when we validate the word of God, we're impacting culture at a deep level. It's powerful stuff. A couple final thoughts here. Remember, first of all, don't judge people on this basis. We, this passage is not intended to arm you to determine who God is working in and who God is not working in. If there are names going through your head, cast them out. The names, not the people out of your life. The names, right? <laughs> cast them out. Don't go there. This is not a sermon for them. It's a sermon for you. Okay? It's for you. This is not to empower you to judge people. Secondly, if in your life you have named the name of Christ and you have no clue, you have never once experienced anything that I read in that passage, then I would go back to God and tell him that. And if there's something inside of you that's saying, Hey, I want, I, I, I'd like to know what that is. Man, you just go to you say, God, right now, show me, show me. I'm I'm gonna submit to it. Reveal what, what, what sins I've been holding on to and, and let me just make a clean break and today, let me renounce the ungodliness and let me embrace godliness. Let this be that first movement. Let it be that truth for you. Because the work of grace is transformation so that we can impact the culture. Would you bow your head with me? Let's just pray here this morning. If you this morning have are thinking through those things and you're thinking about your, your place and with God and, and, and thinking about that move, this is a good moment just to lift in your heart and your mind a prayer to God and saying, God, I, I, I want to know that change. And I believe that you pray that prayer, God will answer that prayer. If in your heart... There are things that the Spirit is moving you towards right now. Things that you know you need to be moving away from. Things that you're saying, yeah, I've been going in this bad direction and I'm feeling that little tinge. Don't resist the grace. Because God's grace is so strong, it can move from a nudge to discipline because that's how committed God is. So don't resist it. Embrace it. Father, this morning we have been in touch with some of the most profound truths. It's amazing to think about how committed you are to us who are so unworthy. God, your grace is awesome. And and the thought of your return and the thought of of the fact that you just can work in us and, and change us and set us free God, the thought that that we don't have to walk in the bondage that our friends are walking in, we don't have to walk in the the bondage that the world is walking in, we don't have to be stuck in bitter states in our home and and bitter state at work and angry state and arguing and fighting and, and all that goes on with age, God. We don't have to be there that your grace has appeared to save us from that and to change us and to cause us to not be conformed to the ugliness of this world, but to be transformed to the glory of Your Son. Lord, I pray that would be true for us. I pray, God, that we would walk in this manner. I pray, Lord, that we would walk transformed. Lord, I pray we'd submit to Your nudging. I pray, God, that we'd have the long view that those that are in the midst of long-term suffering, that your call for their Christian walk is to put them in places where they don't share the same temporal benefits that other people have. God, allow them not to be looking at the fruit you didn't provide, but Lord, keep their eyes on the glory of Jesus who will return as their blessed hope who will make all things right. The blessed resolution. God, let this be true of us so that we can make the impact in our culture the way you designed us to. Thank you, God, for your grace. And I pray this in Jesus, who loves us and died for us, who rose from the dead, who's preparing a place and who's coming back for us. Amen.